0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: England had been transformed from a chilly outcast on the edges of Christendom into a papal fief along with other European kingdoms including Sicily, Poland, Sweden, Denmark, Portugal, and Aragon. "'The kingdom is become a royal priesthood, and the priesthood a kingdom of priests,' wrote Innocent when he heard the news. John had apparently been duly rewarded with the awesome victory at Doma. Reconciliation with Rome was a process, however, and not an event. Six weeks after Dommer, on July twentieth, John stood on Morn Hill outside Winchester, and looked down on the splendid city below. His fine robes of colourful silk and satin shone in the summer sun, as did those of his courtiers and their thoroughbred horses. Winchester was alive with colour and activity, as Stephen Langton, an Archbishop of Canterbury at last allowed to tent his flock, made his way in a great ecclesiastical procession across the Sussex Downs and into the ancient city. Minutes later John and Langton took part in a public ceremony of reconciliation, complete with tears, incense, and kisses of peace and promises by John that he would love and uphold the church. John paid handsomely for this reconciliation, both in the fines he had agreed to pay the Pope, and in the fall in income he had accepted when he gave up his exploitation of vacant ecclesiastical posts, but the prodigal son had returned, and John was now much in favour at Rome. This, combined with Philip II's loss of his navy, encouraged John to throw everything into another attempt at regaining his continental possessions. He began to plan a massive invasion, scheduled to land in Poitou and push north during the spring and summer of 1214. It was vital that he convince his barons to go with him. But the northern barons, led by Eustace de Visi, now uneasily reconciled with the king, refused to serve, claiming they could not afford to do so. Faced with baronial intransigence for a second time in his reign, John flew into a predictable rage. This time, unlike in 1205, he would not be deterred from his ambition. He spent autumn 1213 preparing the ground for an invasion under what he described in a letter to his sometime ally Emery de Tour as an unbelievably large force. John's exploitation of his feudal dues and the profits of justice mounted wildly in the months before the invasion. He levied scutage, a tax substituting cash payments for the baron's feudal obligation to provide knights to serve in the king's army, at three marks per knight's fee, the heaviest rate ever recorded. The reliefs and fees on feudal incidents became astonishingly high. William Fitzallan was charged ten thousand marks for succession to the Fitzallan barony. John de Lacy paid seven thousand marks for the honour of Pontefract widows were being charged up to one thousand pounds to keep their dowries and not be forcibly remarried. The greatest sale of all was the offering of twenty thousand marks from Geoffrey Mandeville, who paid the sum for the hand in marriage of Isabel, Countess of Gloucester. Isabel carried the dubious distinction of having once been married to John, before he discarded her in eleven ninety-nine to wed Isabella of Angoulême. She was a rich heiress in her own right, but the sum charged to Geoffrey for her marriage was still astronomical, and these were not notional debts. Geoffrey was expected to pay for his queenly bride in four instalments over nine months. The cash raised did not lie idle. John's money began flooding the continent, and he built a coalition around the support of his nephew, the Emperor Otto IV. The Counts of Holland, Boulogne, and Flanders joined the resistance to Philip in northwestern Europe. The plan was to trap him in a pincer movement between two forces, the first under Salisbury would attack Philip from Flanders, the second under John would move up from Poitou to strike from the south. In February 1214 John sailed from Portsmouth for La Rochelle, in a galley laden with precious gemstones, silver and gold, and carrying numerous English nobles, as well as Queen Isabella and John's five-year-old second son Prince Richard. This was no whimsical campaign, it was to be the glorious recapture of John's birthright. The campaign started well. Throughout the spring John employed a combination of diplomacy and siegecraft to secure Poitou and its environs. Peace was made with the troublesome Lusignan family, who had been so slighted back in 1202 when John had whisked his queen Isabella of Angoulême out from under their noses. To bring them back to favour a marriage was arranged between John's daughter Joan, born in 1210, and Hugh de Lusignan's son and heir. In early June, with Poitou successfully secured, John moved on to Brittany, and took Nantes by siege. Angers, in the heart of Anjou, swiftly opened its gates. With Philip reluctant to join battle, John was showing that the spirit of Plantagenet bellicosity lived on. Then disaster struck. John was besieging the castle of La roche aux Moines on the border between Poitou and Brittany in the company of some of his Poitevin barons, when he heard that Philip's twenty-six-year-old son Prince Louis was approaching at the head of an army. John decided that the moment was ripe for a pitched battle, yet his allies suddenly lost faith. The Poitevin barons who had accompanied him for months fulfilled their reputation for inconstancy. They simply upped and ran— refusing to risk battle with the House of Capet. With a speed that belied the painstaking and expensive diplomacy with which John had built his coalition, the Southern Alliance melted away. Instead of fighting Prince Louis, John could only retreat before his advance and take cover back where his expedition had begun, in La Rochelle. Despite the humiliation of this retreat, John could still hope that the northern allies in his pincer movement would show their mettle. While he waited in La Rochelle, on July 27th the northern coalition assembled under Emperor Otto IV's fluttering banner of the dragon and golden eagle and made ready for the destruction of the French king on a plain near the village of Bouvines. The army that took to the field against Philip at the Battle of Bouvines was a typical medieval affair, loud violent and disorganized each leader had his own men and his own standard and such grand strategy as existed was fairly rudimentary cavalry charges were the main weapon used by either side at times the battle would have resembled the melee of the tournament field but with added intent men carried heavy lances and pounds of chain mail which could suffocate its wearer to death if he fell awkwardly in the churned mud of the field. Blood-curdling screams and the sickening crunch of heavy metal piercing into human flesh, grunts of effort and the thick, gurgling breath of the dying would have raged all around, as hand-to-hand fighting left the plain at Bouvines gouged and blood-stained. The English troops rallied around the Earl of Salisbury's blue banners with yellow lions rampant emblazoned upon them. They fought bravely on the right flank. The leaders from both sides were at the centre, both Otto the Fourth and Philip were unhorsed during the fighting. The battle raged for three long hours, first in favour of the imperial troops, and then as the fighting wore on, tipping toward the French. The French were victorious in the end. Their cavalry charges, led by some of the finest knights in Europe, gradually overwhelmed the patchwork of coalition forces arraigned against them. Otto and Philip led their knights in a melee, which was settled decisively in the French favour. Otto was protected manfully by a group of Saxon knights, but eventually he had no choice but to flee the battlefield, narrowly escaping capture as he galloped off. The Counts of Flanders and Boulogne and the Earl of Salisbury were less fortunate. They were all taken prisoner and escorted back to Paris, where the citizens and students of the university danced and sang in the streets for a week to celebrate the famous victory. Far away in La Rochelle there was no dancing. Only despair greeted the news that the Coalition had given its all and lost. John had invested everything in the campaign of 1214, and he had been beaten. He was forced to sign a five-year truce with Philip in the autumn at a price that was rumoured to be 60,000 marks. Financially the king was ruined. He had spent all he had on war preparations, and had cut off his main source of fast cash by reconciling with the church. His military reputation was trampled back into the mud. After Bouvine, John the commander was all but finished. THE MAGNA CARTA When John returned to England after his defeat at Bouvine, he was weaker than he had ever been before. Victory and the recovery of a large portion of the Plantagenet lands might have justified his extortions, just as Richard I's glorious achievements in Outremer and France had made good the expense of his crusading fund and king's ransom. But John returned to England discredited. The only patch of territory in mainland France that remained loyal to the English crown was Gascony and the area round Bordeaux, a pitiful rump of what had once been the sprawling duchy of Aquitaine. A beaten king, John returned to his realm a dangerously vulnerable figure. Baronial disquiet, which had been bubbling up since 1212, now burst into the open. The feeling growing among a broad coalition of English barons was that John's methods must somehow be constrained, that the king who had wielded his powers and prerogatives so mercilessly should now be brought under some sort of control. The unfathomable question was what sort of bell could be tied to the cat. Two meetings between king and barons during the winter of 1214 to 1215 failed to resolve their differences. In January 1215 John met with about forty dissatisfied barons in London, where he stalled for enough time to write to Rome and place the case before his new feudal overlord, the Pope. During the spring both sides wrote to Innocent the Third. The barons submitted demands that John should be made to obey the Charter of Liberties that had been issued by Henry I on his coronation in 1100. They proposed that the king should be forced to stand by his own coronation oath to observe good law and exercise justice, and argued that demands for English barons to pay scutage or provide armed men to fight on the continent were unfair and illegal. John's papal envoys thought the king, as a reconciled son of Rome, ought not to be troubled by rebellions from his subjects a position that was strengthened when john took the cross on march fourth as a crusader he was now explicitly protected from attack by fellow christians that the barons chose to appeal to the spirit of henry i's charter was illuminating the charter of liberties which had been confirmed by henry ii in eleven fifty four promised among other things that the king would not plunder church property or charge outrageous fees for inheritances, marriages, and widows remarriages, nor would he abuse wardships, or extend the royal forest. These were all requests that could fairly be directed at King John, but the choice of Henry I's charter also demonstrated that the barons viewed their grievances as part of a grand scheme of Plantagenet government dating back more than a century. It was a reasonable position for the barons to take, but their arguments were ignored. Innocent appointed Archbishop Langton to mediate between king and barons and held legal hearings on the dispute in Rome. There, rather than attempt to arbitrate the dispute fairly, Innocent found wholly in favour of his vassal, the crusader king John. Innocent wrote to the English barons insisting that they should pay their scutage and cease making demands of the king. It was a blunt judgment that did nothing to address the serious political disquiet in England the only possible outcome was civil war. On May 5, 1215, a group of rebels formally defied John, renouncing their homage and fealty, effectively rejecting him as King of England. The barons who opposed him were led by the plotters of 1212, Eustace de Vesey and Robert Fitzwalter, who styled himself by the magnificently pompous title of Marshal of the Army of God de Vesey was the foremost of a group of northern barons including William de Mowbray, Richard de Percy, and Roger de Montbegon, Lord of Hornby in Lancashire. The northerners were a tight-knit group, bonded by marriage, kinship, and territorial proximity. All had personal cause to dislike John in particular, and Plantagenet government in general. Around these rebel leaders was a band of magnates from East Anglia and the home counties, which included most prominently Richard de Clare, Earl of Hertford, and his son Gilbert, and Geoffrey de Mandeville, Earl of Essex and Gloucester. Other barons included Robert de Vere, Earl of Oxford, Henry de Boone, Earl of Hereford, and William Marshall's son, William the Younger. Plenty, in fact almost all, of the rebellious barons opposed John on grounds of self-interest, and some, like Fitzwalter, were simply unscrupulous and belligerent but the rebels were also bound together by the germ of an ideology, a sense that the government was in need of fundamental reform. Once they had renounced their homage, however, very little reform could take place without recourse to bloody warfare. On May 10th John wrote to the rebel barons stating that he, Would not arrest or disseize them or their men, nor would he go against them by force of arms except by the law of the land and by judgment of their peers in his court. He made personal overtures to those whom he had dealt with particularly severely during the build-up to the Poitou campaign. He offered to submit to arbitration by a panel of eight barons chaired by the Pope himself. His terms were rejected, and on May twelfth, John ordered the confiscation of rebel lands. There was now no escaping the fact that England was, for the first time since 1173, at war with itself. The third week of May saw a dash for London between the Earl of Salisbury, who had been released from prison following the defeat at Bouvine, and a group of rebel barons led by Fitzwalter. They raced through the dark of night to reach the capital, which was crucial to the symbolic and strategic control of England. London was an economic powerhouse, a city of culture and prosperity. Its great stone walls protected the city, with William the Conqueror's Tower of London in the east and Baynard's Castle in the west. Its skyline prickled with scores of little church towers, like needles around the central spire belonging to the vast wooden-roofed cathedral of St. Paul's, perched proudly on top of Ludgate Hill. London was a hub of trade and of political power. Holding the city had been essential to King Stephen's survival against Matilda, and in the spring of 1215 it once again became the key to controlling England. On May 17th, a quiet Sunday morning, the rebels reached London, emerging as the sun was still drying the dew from the city's rooftops. The bells in the church towers were clanging with their fat metallic call to morning worship, as the seven gates in the city walls were cranked open to allow forces hostile to the King of England into the capital. The rich citizens were favourable to the barons," wrote the chronicler Roger of Wendover, who lived and worked at St. Albans in Northamptonshire, and the poor ones were afraid to murmur against them. By the time Salisbury reached the city it was too late. Guards loyal to the barons manned the city gates. Inside the walls scribes were compiling documents to be sent to all earls, barons, and knights thought still to be faithful to John, demanding that they abandon. A king who was perjured and come over to the rebel side with London. The rebel barons had their wedge. John's hopes of crushing resistance to his rule were over. Yet they could not be said to have won. John might have lost the confidence of a large swath of his barons, but he was still legitimately the king, backed by the pope. He could, in theory, still dispossess and outlaw his enemies. The rebels wished to reform government not so as to depose or fundamentally hobble kingship, but to bring it within what they regarded as reasonable bounds. They wanted to force the king to govern peacefully and fairly within the law, yet they were doing so by breaking the law. It was a situation of deep complexity for both sides. So as the rebels camped in London, and John took his court upriver to Windsor, the roads and waterways between the two were well trodden by messengers from both sides, "'attempting to find a way in which the proud king "'could be cajoled into putting his seal to a document "'that answered some of his rebels' demands. "'After a month of wrangling a solution emerged. "'Sometime between June 10th and 15th "'baronial envoys agreed with the king "'that a document now known as the Articles of the Barons "'could form the basis for a final negotiation of peace. "'This list of forty-nine points set out what the barons hoped to achieve from King John. It concerned issues of justice and feudal precedent, such as the well-argued matters of how much should be charged for wardships, inheritances, and widows, scutage payments, and the obligation to serve in armies outside the realm, and the extent of the royal forests. The Articles formed an agreed schedule for detailed negotiation, and several more days of hard and detailed bargaining ensued. Eventually another document was agreed upon by June 18th, when John's chancery sent out writs commanding his officers in the shires to stop making war on his enemies. The following day at Runnymede in Berkshire, barons started renewing their homage to John, who wore the regalia of Empress Matilda to emphasize the ancient status of his kingship. In return, John, his allies, and selected rebel barons swore oaths to obey the terms of an agreement that is among the most famous in English history, the Magna Carta. The term Magna Carta means simply Great Charter. Read today, the document of 1215 seems to reflect a difficult compromise. It was an agreement that neither side quite welcomed. On the one hand it granted sweeping rights. The English church shall be free the City of London is to have its ancient liberties. On the other it was full of highly exact statements of English custom, clauses laid out the specific conditions under which a scutage could be levied on the kingdom, where bridges should be built, and the laws concerning Jewish debts. It agreed on one hundred pounds as the fee for an earl's or a baron's inheritance, and one hundred shillings for a knight's. On the matter of wardships the King promised to take no more than reasonable revenues, reasonable customary dues, and reasonable services, although what was reasonable was undefined. It was promised that a widow shall have her marriage portion and inheritance forthwith and without any difficulty after the death of her husband, nor shall she pay anything to have her dower, and also that no widow shall be forced to marry so long as she wishes to live without a husband. The king promised that no scutage or aid shall be imposed in our kingdom unless by common counsel, except for ransoming our person, for making our eldest son a knight, and for once marrying our eldest daughter. Whereas many of the clauses in the charter were formal terms pertaining to specific policies pursued by John, whether with regard to raising armies, levying taxes, impeding merchants, or arguing with the church, the most famous clause is aimed at a deeper elaboration of the rights of subjects to set out the limits of central government. Clause 39 reads, No free man shall be taken or imprisoned or deceased or outlawed or exiled or in any way ruined except by lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. Clause 40 is more laconic. To no one will we sell, to no one will we deny or delay right or justice these clauses addressed the whole spirit of John's reign, and by extension the spirit of kingship itself. For the eleven years in which John had resided in England, his barons had tasted a form of tyranny. John had used his powers in an arbitrary, partisan, and exploitative fashion, and had used the processes of law deliberately to weaken and menace his noble lords. He had broken the spirit of kingship as presented by Henry the Second back in 1153, when he travelled the country offering unity and legal process to all. Defining the appropriate limits to the powers of a king, and by extension his government, was no easy task. Neither was ensuring, once it was defined, that the king stuck to its terms. The Magna Carta ended with a security clause, providing for a council of twenty-five named barons to make war on the king if he broke the terms of the agreement. This was nothing more than a contractual basis for civil war. Stating that a king should govern according to the law, and making sure that he did so were, it turned out, quite separate matters, these questions would lie at the heart of every major disagreement between king and country for centuries to come, and in the fierce, tense atmosphere of 1215, finding an agreement was to prove impossible. As a peace treaty, for this is what it was, the Magna Carta was an immediate failure. There was a brief moment of hope on June 19th when the homage and oaths were made, the twenty-five security barons were elected, and a substantial number of rebels agreed to the terms of the Charter as the basis for peace. "'The King satisfactorily restored justice everywhere, lifting the sieges which he had begun,' wrote Walter of Coventry." The production line began, and a copy of the Charter was circulated around the towns and villages, and all who saw it agreed to it. But not all the barons accepted the Charter of Liberties as drafted, and some chose at once to rebel. Certain from across the river Humber went away and renewed hostilities, the chronicler continued. The Magna Carta sparked debate everywhere, and it was quite unacceptable to one man above all others. King John. In less than two months John secured an annulment of its terms from Innocent III, who wrote in a wonderfully bombastic dispatch that, "'We utterly reject and condemn this settlement, and under threat of excommunication we order that the King should not dare to observe it, and that the barons and their associates should not require it to be observed. The charter we declare to be null and void of all validity forever. ever.' The war resumed, and this time it escalated. Before the end of the year Philip II of France had declared John's crown forfeit, citing a trial in which John had been found guilty of killing Arthur of Brittany. Preparations were made for the French king and his son Prince Louis to invade England on the invitation of the barons and depose the tyrant king. The French landed in Kent on May fourteenth, 1216, Prince Louis found London waiting for him. He was accepted with all alacrity and happiness, and they performed homage, wrote Walter of Coventry. Ignoring a papal interdict and excommunication levied on him by the papal legate Cardinal Guala Bicchieri, Louis then advanced to Winchester, before heading back to the southeast to besiege Henry II's massive gateway fortress at Dover as john moved about the country attempting to lay siege to rebel towns and evade the enemies who wished to depose him he grew desperate and disconsolate crossing the wash in lincolnshire that autumn he misjudged the tide and lost most of his baggage train according to ralph of coggis hall he lost his portable chapel with his relics and some of his pack-horses with many household supplies and many members of his entourage were submerged in the waters of the sea and sucked into the quicksand. During this desperate journeying John contracted dysentery, and throughout October he grew gradually weaker. By the middle of the month he was being carried on a litter. When his party reached Newark in Nottinghamshire he was attended by the Abbot of Croxton, who was a doctor. It was to no avail. John died on October nineteenth, 1216, his country invaded, and his royal authority utterly diminished. His body was not taken to Fontevraud, where his mother, father, and brother were buried. Rather he was buried at Worcester Cathedral, near the altar of St. Wolfstan, the eleventh-century Saxon bishop who had been canonized earlier in John's reign. For the first Plantagenet to have spent more time in England than out of it, to be buried in an ancient Anglo-Saxon city was perhaps fitting this audiobook is continued on disc seven the plantagenets by dan jones continued disc seven to writers like walter of coventry the problems of john's reign were obvious john was indeed a great prince but scarcely a happy one he wrote like marius he experienced the ups and downs of fortune He was munificent and liberal to outsiders, but a plunderer of his people, trusting strangers rather than his subjects. He was eventually deserted by his own men, and in the end little mourned. William Marshall was more poetic. As John sank into his final illness, he wrote, he was racked with pain. That great harrier, that wicked, harsh creature, took him under her control, and never let him go until he died it was an appropriate way for england's most remorseless king to end his life john's reputation is as one of the worst kings in english history a diabolical murderer who brought tyranny and constitutional crisis to his realm the legends of robin hood began to circulate in their earliest forms toward the end of his reign stories in which a hero who has been dispossessed and badly treated by the king's corrupt agents takes his bloody revenge on his enemies. The subject of badly wielded authority lay at their heart. John's name has over the years been associated with the worst evil of these stories, and he has been written off as a monster, a failure, and a devil. But was anything he did truly more grotesque than some of the deeds perpetrated by his much-lauded brother Richard or his father? Probably they were not, yet John's reputation suffered far more than theirs. In the most sympathetic analysis, John's greatest crime was to have been king as fortune's wheel rolled downward. He had all of the family's most ruthless instincts allied with none of their good fortune. He presided weakly over the loss of Normandy, and once the duchy was lost he twice failed to win it back. He did not inspire men to great deeds with the force of his personality, yet it is fair to wonder if Henry II or even Richard might have regained Normandy from the position that John occupied in 1204. It is easy to see why he trod the path he did between 1207 and 1211, and aside from his paranoid pursuit of personal vendettas, it is hard to see what any other king in his position would have done differently. For four deceptive years John was master not only of his kingdom, but of the English church, England's Celtic neighbours, and a powerful system of justice and government that offered some protection for the lesser men of the kingdom against their lords, even if it was turned mercilessly toward the needs of the crown. He failed to realize in good time what problems he was making for himself by dealing with his barons not as partners but as creditors, whom he could treat with cruelty and disdain. As it was, a disastrous civil war capped by a French invasion was John's immediate legacy to his family. In 1215 the Magna Carta was nothing more than a failed peace treaty. John was not to know any more than the barons who negotiated its terms with him would have done that his name and the myth of the document sealed at Runnymede would be bound together in English history forever. Yet this in the long run was the case. The Magna Carta would be reissued time and again in the years immediately following John's death, and interpreting this intricate document on the limits of the powers of a king would be at the heart of every constitutional battle that was fought during the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries as henry the third struggled to regain the rights and territories that his father had lost the great charter gradually came to define the terms of engagement between king and community when it was reissued in twelve twenty five the magna carta was nailed to church doors and displayed in town squares across england gaining legendary status as a document whose spirit stood for the duty of English kings to govern within the laws they made. That, in a strange way, was John's legacy. Perhaps the most ruthless legalist ever to reign as English king would have appreciated the irony. SECURING THE INHERITANCE Henry III was nine years old when his father died, and he was crowned in a hurry. The ceremony was a West Country affair that took place in Gloucester Abbey, a safe haven behind Loyalist lines. Beneath the great nave of the Norman Abbey Church, a reduced smattering of ecclesiastical and lay lords watched uncertainly as the bishops of Winchester, Worcester, and Exeter carried out the anointing and placed a simple lady's coronet on the child's head. There was little pageantry and no regalia, for all the sacred robes and effects of a full coronation were at Westminster, which was controlled by the rebels. This was an expedient, heavily simplified ceremony, designed to transfer what was left of John's authority to the young boy. Henry was the elder of John's two sons, his younger brother Richard was just seven, and even as a young child he had been notable for his serious countenance and manner of speaking he was to grow up to be deeply pious devoted to all manner of cults particularly that of the virgin mary and such a voracious hearer of the mass that it sometimes interfered with his ability to conduct government business The young king stood in Gloucester Abbey, and in a fragile voice swore before the great altar that he would observe honour, peace, and reverence toward God and the Holy Church and its ordained ministers all the days of his life, that he would give his people justice, that he would abolish bad laws and customs, and observe the good. How realistic were these promises! Certainly Henry had to make them, for they were the sacred oaths of a king. But a truer reflection of the authority that kept England from collapse was evident when the child paid homage for England and Ireland to the Pope, represented in person by the papal legate, Cardinal Guala Bicchieri. He swore an oath to put the realm under the protection of the Church and a few men of God. Ninety miles away, Westminster was held by Philip II's son, Louis. Castles across the country were manned by garrisons of French knights invited to England by the rebel barons, who wished to elect a new king from the House of Capet, rather than suffer under a fourth Plantagenet king. The baleful end to John's reign had left England fatally divided. Once again the succession had become not simply a question of legitimacy, but a trial of strength. All those in the Abbey Church's sparse crowd would have realized that this was a dreadful way to start a reign. No boy had been king since the time of Ethelred in the days before the conquest, and the precedents from that reign were miserable indeed. Ethelred had presided over a time of Viking raids and invasions, and had been deposed for a year. Grim times were ahead if England was to be thrown back into Saxon chaos. A few men remained devoted to avoiding that fate. Henry III was fortunate to have around him a group of supporters committed not to seizing power for themselves, but to maintaining the fragile office of kingship. On his deathbed, John had begged for the elderly William Marshall, Earl of Pembroke, to become his son's guardian. Now well into his seventies, Marshall had accepted the task at first with knightly reticence, and then in typically grandiloquent style, declaring that, "'If all the world deserted the young boy except me,' "'Do you know what I would do? I would carry him on my shoulders. I would be with him and never let him down, from island to island, from land to land, even if I had to scavenge for my daily bread.' Notwithstanding his weakness for a dramatic turn of phrase, it was not just to the solemn nine-year-old Henry's advantage that such an attitude should prevail among a few good men in England. The king, if he was ever to take office fully, would need officers committed to restoring his authority. The future of his kingdom depended on it. The other key men around the new king included Peter de Roche, John's former justiciar and bishop of Winchester. De Roche had crowned Henry, and despite his widespread unpopularity in the country at large, he was to become Henry's tutor and mentor on and off for the next two decades. Then there was Guala, whose presence in the royal camp gave papal legitimacy to the cause. Finally, there was Hubert de Burr, the Norfolk-born loyalist who had served John for more than a decade. Appointed as the new justiciar, de Burr presented an acceptable face of government to those who mistrusted aliens. These men would form the core of a working coalition, whose first and most urgent task was to defend against the invasion and resolve the crises that engulfed the realm. The rebellious northern barons had a dangerous leader in Prince Louis, he and his allies had captured and held castles all over England, many were garrisoned by foreign mercenaries. Louis had broad control over the south-east, and French ships patrolled the channel, the only way to rid the realm of the French was in battle. Henry's fate was decided at Lincoln. It was the last and perhaps the greatest military engagement of William Marshall's long and distinguished life. Having assembled four hundred knights and two hundred and fifty crossbowmen from all parts of the kingdom in Newark after Whitson in 1217, Marshall marched his men straight to Lincoln. He arrived on May 20th to find that Louis' forces had entered the walled city and were besieging the castle. The French prince himself was farther south besieging Dover, and the Count of Perche was in command at Lincoln, surrounded by the bulk of the rebellious English earls. The French knew that Marshall was arriving, but they dithered and could not agree on a strategy. As they procrastinated, Marshall addressed his knights with a speech to rival that written by Shakespeare for Henry V. "'These men have seized and taken by force our lands and our possessions,' he said. "'Shame on the man who does not strive this very day to put up a challenge.' If we beat them, it is no lie to say that we will have won eternal glory for the rest of our lives. The rhetoric must have had some effect. Marshall took charge of his loyal knights, telling them to be ready to slit their own horses' throats if they needed to take shelter behind the carcasses in the open plain that lay before the northern entrance to the city. Bishop Roches commanded the crossbowmen and Ranulf Earl of Chester one group of knights, but they could only watch with awe as Marshal led a direct frontal cavalry attack on the city. The old man was so desperate to join battle that he almost forgot to put on his helmet before he charged the enemy. When he adjusted his armor and led the first charge, he plowed into the French defenders with such force that he punched a hole three lances deep in their lines. If this was the last chance to save the dynasty he had served all his life, then he was determined to give it his all six bloody and brutal hours of fighting ensued it was a grisly awful scene the air filled with the deafening clang of weapons upon helmets lances shattering and flying in splinters into the air limbs crushed and severed by blows from swords and maces and sharp daggers plunging into the sides of men and horses alike they fought through the city until the streets heaved with blood and human entrails "'The noise,' recalled Marshall, "'was so great that you would not have heard God-thunder.' At the end of the fighting the French were roundly defeated. Almost every major rebel baron was captured, and the Count of Perche died when a spear was thrust through his eye and into his brain. When the news of the loss reached Prince Louis in Dover, he immediately raised his siege, made for London, and began to think of terms for withdrawal.' But the war would not end before the French suffered worse humiliation. In August they were beaten at sea when Hubert de Boer commanded a resounding naval victory at Sandwich over French troops led by the pirate captain Eustache the Monk, who later became the subject of his own Robin Hood-style outlaw romance. The English showered the French with arrows and blinded them by throwing quicklime down wind to burn out their eyes. Eustache the monk was captured hiding in the ship's bilges. He was offered a choice, beheading on the side of a siege-engine or on the ship's rail. It is not recorded which fate he chose. This was enough for Prince Louis. Henry's regency government had shown its mettle on the battlefield, and the French prince was happy enough to pocket a bribe and leave. Thus was the greatest external threat to the English crown in a century averted after leading the heroic charge at lincoln william marshall served as regent of england for more than two years he reached the distinguished old age of seventy three before his health began to fail him but in the spring of twelve nineteen after a life of devoted service he died for many in england this was a matter of great dismay for marshall was as close to a non-partisan figure as existed a loyal critic of the crown who had been unwavering in his support of plantagenet kingship but never afraid to criticize when he believed that the kings were behaving improperly or ruling badly. Marshall's life story was interwoven with all the great kings of his age Henry II, Henry the Young King, Richard I, John, Louis the Seventh, Philip II, and latterly in battle, the future Louis the Eighth. He had been an able regent, and without his guiding hand and sureness of principle, the world looked set to be a more turbulent place. In the days before he died, Marshall dealt with many things, not least his children's futures, and his wish to be invested as a knight-templar in fulfilment of his crusader's vow. Most important of all, he thought of Henry III's future, and how best the child king should be educated to ensure the prosperity of his kingdom. As he lay suffering, he called for the twelve-year-old king and took him by the hand. He told him that he wished him to be passed into the care of the new papal legate, Pandolf, who had replaced Guala in 1218, and then exhorted the king to lead a better life than his father. "'I beg the Lord our God that if I ever did anything to please him, that in the end he grant you to grow up to be a worthy man,' Marshall said. "'And if it were the case that you followed in the footsteps of some wicked ancestor, and that your wish was to be like him, then I pray to God, the son of Mary,' that you die before it comes to that. Amen, the king replied. By the time Marshall died, Henry III was old enough to be consulted on matters of governance, and had been given his own seal to ratify decisions made on his behalf. Yet if he had an awareness of the stiff realities of government, that did not mean that he was trusted to take on the business of rule for himself for as long as he remained a child there would be faction and uncertainty marshal was replaced by a triumvirate with pandolf peter de roche and hubert de bur all having a hand in reconstructing england's battered administration after the ravages of civil war but after henry's second more magnificent coronation in 1220 this time in the grander surroundings of canterbury de roche fell from grace and eventually departed for the holy land Thereafter de Burr dominated. Throughout the 1220s Henry clung to the justiciar for advice, and leaned on him as he set about rebuilding royal finance, and directing campaigns to subdue internal rebellion by truculent barons, and Welsh aggression under Llywelyn the Great of Gwyneth. De Burr did his best to contain Llywelyn by leading a military expedition to the west, while he attempted to increase the king's ravaged finances by squeezing royal sheriffs to produce more income from their shires. Yet kingship without a mature king remained a ship captained by committee, and any realm under a minority smacked of weakness. When Philip II died in 1223, his thirty-five-year-old son, England's erstwhile invader, became Louis Eighth and determined almost at once to attack the English crown's position in Poitou, after the domestic disturbance of the early years, this was the first real foreign crisis of Henry's reign. The critical blow fell in the summer of 1224, when the citizens of La Rochelle heard the thunderous approach of a French army before their walls. The new and energetic King of France wheeled his siege-engines against them from the land. With a weak and still impoverished young King of England on the other side of the channel, it was not surprising that the townsmen surrendered almost immediately, selling their allegiance for French coin. Poitou itself had been held precariously ever since John's ill-fated sally in 1214. Losing La Rochelle removed a vital English foothold on the continental coast, and put channel-shipping into serious jeopardy. As the chronicler Roger of Wendover explained, La Rochelle is where the kings of England and their knights usually land for the defence of those districts, but now the way was closed to the king. Meanwhile Hugh de Lusignan, who had married John's widow Queen Isabella, and was thus now technically Henry's stepfather, overran most of Gascony. The already truncated English rump of Aquitaine was reduced to Bordeaux and a few coastal towns. All that was left of the Plantagenet continental possessions was in danger of being lost for good. Recovering Gascony and Poitou was a matter of urgency for de burgh and the young king. Family pride depended on it. But what promise did it hold for anyone else? Merchants did good business in the wine trade, but they were not political men. No English baron had a stake there. Thus the need to recover Poitou and Gascony raised fundamental questions about the means by which the English crown could finance war on the continent. The refusal of John's barons to join his various expeditions had touched off a crisis that ended with the promulgation of the Magna Carta and civil war how could de burr and henry convince the same class that now eleven years later it was in their interest to fight for land where they had no financial stake this in a nutshell was to be the central dilemma of kingship for the rest of henry's long reign although he had not really known any of his royal ancestors henry felt keenly the historical burden of restoring their prestige a task he saw as expressed through the defence of what was left of the continental empire the expansion of power back into the old lands of central and western France, and building influence on the fringes of Henry II and Richard's empire in Germany, Sicily, and Castile. Yet these were precisely the burdens that under John had been felt to be intolerable to the political community of England. In 1224-1225 to 1225, the new regime needed urgently to restate the case for restoring the Plantagenet Empire. The solution came by two routes. The first was to appeal to fear. Wild rumours circulated that with the channel full of French shipping and a hungry new Capetian king on the throne, England was under threat of another invasion. If continental reconquest was of little interest to the English barons, then defence of the coast was a worthy rallying cause. Hubert de Burr played on the invasion scare for all it was worth and succeeded in making it, in the short term at least, a valid reason for national military expenditure. The second line of attack, which was to matter far more in both the political history of Henry's reign and the constitutional development of Plantagenet kingship for nearly two centuries afterward, was to seek to heal the wounds of John's reign by reissuing the Magna Carta. It was granted to the assembled lay and ecclesiastical lords of England in a great council in January, twelve twenty-five as a political exchange for the grant of a tax of one-fifteenth part of England's movables that the reissue of the charters represented a quid pro quo between king and political community was unmistakable to roger of wendover at least all the assembly of bishops earls barons abbots and priors gave that they would willingly accede to the king's demands for a fifteenth if he would grant them their long-sought liberties The Magna Carta had been issued twice, in 1216 and 1217, since its original promulgation in 1215. In 1217 it had been accompanied by a charter of the forest, which limited the king's rights over the swaths of royal forest land that stretched across England, and allowed ordinary people the rights of grazing animals, digging ditches, and other vital agricultural privileges. Previously, forest law had been onerous and hugely resented by landowners. Royal forests were not just areas of woodland, but included pastures and even parts of farms and villages. Resisting the creep of the special law that governed these lands meant confronting the most powerful arm of kingship on the ground. Committees of men were appointed to physically walk the boundaries of the royal forests and provide reports on their extent. The 1225 reissued charters were in the long run far more important than the original versions that had been foisted upon John at Runnymede and given to the country by William Marshall in the aftermath of a bloody civil war. Together they formed a grant that was to change the course not just of Henry's reign, but of the English kings and queens to come. No longer an ad hoc collection of liberties asserted hotch-potch, the charters became a symbolic statement of political principle. On February 15th and 16th, 1225, packets of orders were sent to every county sheriff in England, ordering them to proclaim and observe the charters, and carry out new surveys of the forest boundaries, while also making provision for the assessment and collection of a tax that would unlock tens of thousands of pounds for an expedition that, for all its advertisement as a means to protect the coasts, was essentially a private royal expedition of reconquest. In immediate political terms the tax was wildly successful, raising £45,000, far more than the minority government had managed to raise by feudal levies. The money enabled Henry and de burgh to muster a well-equipped summer expedition to relieve Gascony. It was led by the king's younger brother Richard, by now a vigorous young man of sixteen, who had been raised to the rank of Earl of Cornwall as a birthday present at the beginning of the year accompanied by the forty-nine-year-old statesman, military veteran, and royal uncle, the Earl of Salisbury. The expedition, richly equipped and led by a seasoned soldier, was a success. The English came fast and fought hard, driving back the French and preventing them from overrunning the last parts of Aquitaine. Salisbury soon found that he could not retake Poitou in a single campaigning season, but his efforts secured Gascony and its valuable wine trade for the English crown, establishing a dependency that was to last for more than two centuries. It was a high point of Henry's minority. Yet the territorial and trade gains were arguably of less significance than the bargain that was struck at home. As English royal flags fluttered above Gascon castles, copies of the two great charters flew around the kingdom across the Channel, royal lawyers scratched their heads and wondered how they could find gaps in the charters and ways to maintain royal prerogative wherever possible but the genie was out of the bottle the charters were revered wherever they landed it swiftly became obvious that a constitutional bargain had been struck henry's administration had begun a process by which military expeditions would be financed at the expense of detailed concessions of political liberties written up in the form of charters that were distributed far and wide across the realm. The deal had been struck by an assembly of barons, bishops, and other magnates, that, if it could hardly yet be called a parliament, was an early iteration of what became one. The feudal prerogatives of kings and their rights over their subjects were now a matter for debate and discussion. This was a compact that would endure for the rest of the Middle Ages, which would define the future of English kingship, and lay the seeds of distant political rebellion overseas. Kingship at last Henry's minority could and perhaps should have come to an end in twelve twenty five when he turned eighteen. The reissue of the Magna Carta would have marked a clean break with his father's reign and a point from which decisively to launch his own. This would have proved especially advantageous when in November 1226 Louis VIII, aged thirty-nine, died of dysentery, and the long minority of his son, the twelve-year-old Louis IX, began. But 1225 did not mark a clean break, nor did January 1227, when a nineteen-year-old Henry declared himself fully of age at a council in Oxford. Although the king began to build up his own household independent of his advisers, he was far from competent in the exercise of power. He was pulled in two directions, particularly with regard to France. Henry attempted to raise money for the reconquest of Normandy and Poitou in 1228 and 1229, while simultaneously wriggling where he could out of the obligations of the charters that had been promulgated in 1225 but it was clear that real power still lay with de Boer, whose reluctance for war on the continent damped the king's enthusiasm and that of his brother Richard, Earl of Cornwall. Henry's attempts to invade Normandy in 1229 and 1230 were dismally unsuccessful. De Boer's caution prevented the major offensive required to match the king's ambition. This slothful progress toward adulthood and independence was a reflection of the king's character— Henry was from his earliest years vague and somewhat guileless. He had vision, but not the ability to put his ideas into practice, or the stomach for headstrong personal government that had been common among even the worst of his ancestors. With de Burgh clinging to power in his position as Justiciar for life, and Henry lacking the strength and self-confidence to grasp the reins of government, an uneasy status quo continued for the best part of another decade. It was not until 1234 that Henry shook off the men he had inherited from his father's reign, and it took a crisis of the utmost gravity to induce him to do so. Having grown up without a father, Henry was excessively drawn to paternal figures, and had an infuriating tendency to take the last rather than the best piece of advice given. He had inherited the Plantagenet temper— and there were numerous occasions during his reign when he flew into rages with his friends and ministers, hurling violent abuse at them, and occasionally trying to brain them with nearby objects. During one fit of temper he tried to attack Hubert Walter with a blunted sword, yet he could rarely stay angry with his advisers long enough to remove them, and as a consequence they continued governing on his behalf for an unseemly length of time. The longer de Bur's hands stayed clamped on the levers of power, the deeper into malaise Henry's reign subsided. While the Justiciar enriched himself with wardships that gave him the profits of major estates, Henry suffered the political consequences of petty squabbling between his Justiciar de Beur and leading young barons who should have formed a loyalist corps around the new king, in particular William Marshall's son Richard and his own brother Richard, Earl of Cornwall who were provoked into revolt in 1231. De Beurge's regime was self-serving and at odds with the king's own aims in government, but things grew far worse in 1231 with the return from crusade of Henry's one-time tutor Peter de Roche, Bishop of Winchester. The overbearing de Roche had no intention of allowing de Bur to run England for his own profit, and saw to it that he manoeuvred himself swiftly back into a position of royal influence. Henry was briefly torn between the two men, both of whom had exercised formative paternal influence on him, but who could never work together. In the end, Desroches won out. In July 1232 a violent quarrel broke out at Woodstock between Henry and de burgh which ended with the twenty-four-year-old king accusing his mentor of a bewildering array of crimes, including poisoning the Earl of Salisbury and the Earl of Pembroke, both of whom had recently died almost certainly through no fault of de Boer's. The deposed justitio was tried in London before his peers, an unmistakable nod toward the demands of the Magna Carta and the new political reality, and was sentenced to perpetual imprisonment in Devize's castle castle. Desroches now dominated Henry and his government. Henry briefly delighted in the precious jewels and trinkets he had confiscated from de Boer, and enjoyed a rare period of solvency— in September 1232 Roches secured for him a tax to pay for a campaign in Brittany, and in 1233 the government laid a savage tally on the Jews. But to the country at large nothing had changed. Roche's rule was no advance on what had preceded it. The bishop was even less popular and more overbearing an influence than de Boer, and he brought with him hated followers who had blighted John's reign. England needed kingship in person, and not by proxy. Yet for two more years it got further partisan rule by an overbearing minister. To secure his position, Desroches rid the court of his opponents, and set about building himself and his followers up with lucrative royal offices, castles, and lands. According to Roger of Wendover, under De Roches' guidance, Henry exiled his nobles and barons without judgment of their peers, burning their villages and houses, cutting down their woods and orchards, and destroying their parks and fish-ponds. The principles of the Magna Carta were trodden under foot. This did nothing to improve relations between the king and Richard.